Good morning, everyone. Hope you have a wonderful day. I'm going to learn exclusively of Shlema and Nachman and Yechavet Shifra. And Harold Bat Miriam. Ezra Bat Ezra Bat Ezra So, and Hashalbat. So, yes, we're we're in the chapter four. Left off on the bottom of page twenty-two B, forty-two B, forty-two B. So the question the mother asked yesterday, we left off the middle of the question. Question was, if a person sells a slave, but only for the knas. The knas is that if if you if you kill a slave, if your axe kills a slave, gores the slave, is killed by an axe. So the law states there's a penalty. You pay it doesn't matter what the value of the slave is. You pay 30, 30, 30 silver coins. It could be worth a penny, the slave could be worth a dollar, be worth a thousand dollars. You pay 30, 30 silver. So what if you don't sell the right, you don't sell the ownership to the slave to someone else. You just sell him the right that if he will be gored, the penalty will be paid to this person who buys the right. So the question is, is that a good sale or not? So the mother said, this is a question both according to Rabbi Meir and according to the rabbis. Rabbi Meir and the rabbis, the classical argument is, could you sell something that doesn't exist yet, like futures? Did I buy futures? Lufgeshef, what am I selling? I'm selling something that will happen in the future, could happen in the future. There's nothing substantial. Unborn baby. Yeah, unborn baby. An acquisition has to be something real. So he says this question is according to both opinions. He says according to Rabbi Meir, it's a question. Because even though Rabbi Meir says that a person could sell something that didn't yet happen yet, but the, the example is, I'm going to sell you all the futures, all the fruits that's going to grow from this, from, this, uh, from this palm tree is yours. All the dates that are going to grow are yours, belongs to you. He says it's a good sale, and, it's, and you committed, it's, it's, you've acquired. So he says, why? Because you know it's going to come. Normally a tree grows trees. It's something dependable. Here, what do I know? How do I know that it'll ever happen? <laughs> A gox is gonna gore and kill my slave, and the and he's gonna there's gonna be a penalty. It's a penalty. We're not talking about an accident. It has to be very specific that your ox killed someone, and the owner of the ox is responsible, and you have to pay for. What are the chances? I mean, it's a gamble. You're paying me. You're buying me. You're paying me the right. You're paying for the right if it happens. But it's like it's like a, it's like an option. <laughs> You're buying options. It's a lufgeschaft of a lufgeschaft. If it happens, when it ha- if maybe yeah, maybe not. So it's it's um, it's not inevitable. Something is not inevitable. There, it's inevitable. The tree is going to grow. Tree. The the, the tree is going to grow fruits. The palm tree is going to grow dates. Here, it's not inevitable. This will ever happen. So even that may will agree that this is not an acquisition. I can't buy. I can't purchase lufgeschaft. Something is not. It's not real. On the other hand, I can say. Oh, and even if it does gore, how do I know he's going to pay? It's only a penalty. What if the owner comes clean? There is no penalty. <laughs> any knas, any penalty, if the owner admits his fault, then, then, then there's guilt. There is no penalty. 
So we, now we're in 43a. Now he's saying, it's also a question according to the Rabbanon, that you can't sell something that doesn't, that in the future, maybe over here, they hold it, you are allowed to. When the rabbis say you can't purchase something that's in the future, the example of the palm tree. I'm selling all those dates that are going to grow from this tree. The rabbis say the dates don't exist yet. So I can't buy, even though it's inevitable, they will grow, probably will grow. But nevertheless, right now, I'm not purchasing anything. I'm purchasing future. Future is not something you can purchase. The Hashnami Lesnar right now doesn't exist. The fruits, the dates don't exist. There is an axe. The axe exists. The goring axe exists. He exists somewhere. <laughs> and the slave exists. It's just a question, will they meet? Will this goring axe and the slave happen to bump into each other? But since they both exist, then maybe I could buy, even the rabbis say I can buy something, something that's going to happen in the future. That's the question the Gemara asks. But Baba answers, Tashma, bring your proof. I'll give you the answer. So we learned. We learned the Bryce. It says in the Pasuk, we lead boys. We lead base. Koyin. Only a koyin is allowed to eat rum. But not only the koyin, his household, his wife, his household women, even his slaves. He says, Yelid Boyes, anyone that's born to his house, Kinyan Kaspoy, anyone who he purchases as a slave, and, and their children. So, Yelid Boyes, what does the Pasuk come to teach me? They're also allowed to eat from. So, what does the Pasuk come to teach me? That the son of the, of the Canaanite slave woman, so also allowed to eat from. Why is it redundant? Why doesn't the Pasuk have to say it? Spell it out. Because if someone you purchase wasn't born in your household, you bought him from the marketplace, now that person becomes your, your slave or, or, or your slave woman. And they're allowed to eat. If they're born and they give birth to a child in your household, they're born a slave, your slave. If someone who you acquired as a slave is allowed to eat in your household, someone who's born a slave into your household, surely allowed to eat. Why does the Pasuk have to spell it out? But I would say the Torah would only tell me that an acquired slave could eat, I would say, I would have said, that a slave that you acquire has a monetary value. Since he has a monetary value, that's where the Torah says he's allowed to eat from Turuma. But so only a slave that has a, val- a value, only he can eat Turuma. If the born slave has no value in the marketplace, then he was not allowed to eat to That's what the Tate has to tell us. No, in the marketplace. People wouldn't pay anything for him. He's weak. He's, 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 he's a baby. <laughs> incompetent. He's a baby. <laughs> so you're not allowed to eat to how do we know if he's worthless? In the marketplace, he has zero value. No one's going to pay a penny for this, for this type of slave. That's what the Torah says. Any child born, even if he's not equivalent to Kenyan Kasper, you can't make a Kavachayman. If you acquire a slave, how much more so a slave is born? No, the acquired slave has value. You acquired him, you paid money for him, he has a certain value. 
How do I know? Just automatically any child. The child is crippled, the child is young, the child, no one's paying a penny for this child. This slave child. The Torah says, since he's born in his household, he's allowed to eat. But then the Brisa continues. But still, I would say, you lead bias if you're born into the household. The t- that's what the Torah is telling me that any slave, any child is born from your slave. Even it doesn't matter if they have value, they don't have value. They are allowed to eat the truma, the sacred truma, which an Israelite is not allowed to. Eat. But I would still think, but Kenyan kesef, but an acquired slave, yes, I would think as long as the acquired slave has monetary value, he's allowed to eat. But what if he doesn't have monetary value? Obviously, you bought him. He had monetary value. But what if now he has no, no monetary value? Let's say he became afflicted. He got sick. Now he's worthless. No one's going to pay a penny for this slave. How do I know he can continue to eat? So he says... So he says, so he says, so that's what we learn. So that's why the Torah juxtaposes the two together. That, that just like the, is the slave who's born into the household, even though he's worthless, a baby, a little kid, worthless, is allowed to eat the truma. So too, it goes back. The one, the slave you acquired, even though now he, now he has no value, continue, is allowed to continue to eat. It's a hekish. You compare the two. So once, once the Torah teaches us this, it also learns on the other one. One learns on the other. One teaches the other. One sheds lights on the other. That's like the Torah comes to add the elite bias, even though he has no value. So now I go back and I say, and the one that I acquired, even though he lost all of his value, of course he had value, I bought him. He had the value in the market. But now that he lost it, still and all, he can continue eating the truth. Okay, that's the Braitha. What's the connection to our discussion? And now, the Baba says, If you're going to think, that a slave whose master sold for the rights of a penalty is considered sold for that purpose, it's a valid sale. So how could there be a slave that's worthless? There's no such thing as a slave that's worthless. Because he has one value. You can collect his insurance. <laughs> if he dies, the masses can get a nice insurance payment. Yes, he's worth nothing. But the trader says you still have to pay 30, 30 kesef, 30 silver coins, even though in the market he's worthless. So he has a, he has a value. If he dies, I'm going to collect. There's no such thing as a servant doesn't have a value. So at least have a value because I can sell him. I can sell him. I'll find someone who's going to pay. The people who buy insurance, and just in case he's going to die, so they buy cheaply, they're ready to put money because if they die, they're going to get a lot of money. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an investment. It's a gamble. It's an investment. It's like a stock. You know? so, so you're going to find. So this, every slave has value. Because someone in the market is going to pay a penny for him at least, a dollar something, for the, for, the, for the right that if anything happens to him, I'm going to collect the insurance money. <laughs> so what do you mean? The slave? How could there be a scenario a slave has no value? There's no such thing. You want to answer is in. You know what? Yeah, let's close it. Look at in. Yeah. I'll give you an example. 
a slave who's a treifa. A treifa who's, who's, who's critically ill, who has a defect. He can't survive. He has a, he's a dying, you know, he's a, a terminal illness. A person who has terminal illness has no value. So then if a gore axes, if an axe gores him, he doesn't, there's no knas. Knas is only if you kill a, a viable person. If you kill a person who's, who's terminally ill, there is no. So there is such a scenario. So it's not proof one way or the other. In general, I can tell you, you could sell the right. And therefore, most slaves do have some value because he can sell the right. He's worth something. Dead, but at least he's worth something in the marketplace. Now, you can get a money from him. What about the other way around? Murder. If you murder someone who's, 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 crit- who's, uh, who's fatally ill, Correct. Uh, terminally ill, there's no penalty. You, know, you don't execute that person. You kill the, de- the person is, is walking dead. Yeah, I mean, there's a, the doctors, the doctors gave him one month to live, and you kill him. You don't execute him in Jewish law. He's a dead. make him But but even a, even a, someone who's fatally how could there be a slave has no value? Even a, a, a slave who's fatally ill, who's uh, terminally ill, but until he's until he dies, he's still here. He can do things. He has some value. He's adding some benefit. He can serve his master. So the mother says, I'm talking about someone who's disgusting. He became full of boils. He's, 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 he can't even be in his presence. He's not. You don't want him even in his presence. He, he's like sick. He's lying in his bed. He's, he can't. No value. He's not. He can't contribute anything of value. He's just sick and dying. So in that case, he has zero value, and there's no knas, and there's nothing. So in the marketplace, he's worth. So from this Brayse, you can't prove anything to our discussion. Okay, so he, he said it's in doubt, and therefore when in doubt, it's not a good acquisition. But when in doubt, it's not a good acquisition. But if the one who purchases goes and grabs the penalty, the 30, if the slave do, does get the gourd and kills, and he grabs the penalty, he can't take it out from him anyway. In other words, has the money, when in doubt, he can't extract this from them. So you can't extract it from the owner, the master of the slave, you know, give him the 30 shekel, even though he sold it, or who says the sale is good. On the other hand, if the one who purchases goes and grabs the money, now he has it, I can't force it out of him. Maybe he's right, maybe it is good. Okay. So when in doubt, that's what you do. Others say no. Even if he grabs it, you, you do take it out from his hand, you give it to the original master. Okay, now the Gemara moves on to another inquiry. They asked, A half-slave, as we learned earlier, a half-slave, one scenario that's good according to everyone, two masters, one master freed, his, his entire portion, which is half, so half of the slave is 100% Jewish, and the other half remains a slave. And Kiddush Paschedon, and he gave a Kiddushin, he married, he betrothed a Jewish woman, or a woman who's freed, a freed woman. Mao, is it a good betrothal or isn't it a good betrothal? Does it have any validity? A Canaanite slave cannot betroth a Jewish woman. There's no marriage at all. It's like a goy, it's an intermarriage. There's no marriage, there's no connection. But here, half of, half of the slave is free. So is the half that's free, is it a marriage? Are they, are they bound to each other? If you're going to want to say, Ben Yisrael, Shamal Abbas Yisrael, 
that it's a, a regular Jew, two Jews. Uh, he's Jewish, he's, he's 100% Jewish, she's 100% Jewish. And he says to him, she says to her, he's Scotch, he says, You are betrothed to half of me. What does that mean? It's a good, good betrothal. Because technically, a person can marry two wives. So therefore, I'm committing half of myself to you because my other half is committed to, uh, to, uh, to another wife, another one. A woman can't do that. A woman can only be married to one man. So if a woman says, only 50% of me is, is married to you, <laughs> doesn't work. Marriage is a total package. All or nothing. For a woman, it's all or nothing. For a man, you know, a man is more compartmentalized, more abstract. He's living in his head anyway. So he's, yeah, 50% to you, 50% to the other wife. So even so, if you're going to say that you can do that, the man can do that, and it's valid, that's only a case where they're both 100% full-fledged Jews. Because the Chavi at least potentially, he could say all of me is married to you. But here it's not even an option. You can't say it's the equivalent, okay? So 50% of him, you're married to 50% of me, what's wrong? No, because here it's not even an option, it should be total. Because half of him is a slave, you can't marry a Jewish woman. If you don't want to say Ben Yisrael Amakadosh Chatzish in the Mekadosh, if you don't want to say that if he says if he says I'm marrying fifty percent of the wife of you the wife the wife says I'm only giving fifty percent, it's not Mekadosh, it's not a good betrothal because over there the Shire we can yon it because maybe over there because you're only limiting it you're only giving fifty percent it's all or nothing. You have to give yourself totally. But Vaha Evan, in this case, here he's giving everything that he could. I only have 50% to give. The other 50% I'm a slave. It's not mine to give. But I, I only, whatever I have, I'm giving you 100% of my 50%. That's all I have. Here, she has 100%. She's only giving 50. Holding something back. Then it's not a good condition. But here he's not holding anything back. So maybe it should be a good condition. He's taking both sides. Which one is it? It says Toshma, bring your proof. We learn the Brahis. If an ox killed a half a slave, we learn if you kill a full slave, you have to pay the 30 seconds. What if you kill a half a slave? He's a half slave and half free. One master freedom, the other master didn't. So he's 50% free and 50%, 100% Jewish, and 50% he's a slave. So what do you do? How much do you have to pay? So the Brahi said, So you have to give half a knas. He's 50 50. So you can't pay the full 30. He's only 50, half of it. So 50, you've got 15, 15 silver kesef you give to the master. And then the other, you have to pay koifer. Koifer is when you've killed, if your ox gores a free person, a, a Jew, you have to evaluate. Koifer means an atonement. Your ox killed a person. You didn't kill them, you didn't pull the trigger, but you were negligent. You allowed the ox to kill a person. So you have to pay the value of the person. You have to value whatever the value in the marketplace. If that person would be sold as a slave, what value does he have? Every person is different. You have a slave that's like Shimshon Agibar, that's very valuable and talented and you know, capable, and he's worth uh, a master of all trades, and he's worth a lot. You have a uh, two left hands, <laughs> weak, sickly, he's worth nothing, whatever. So you evaluate what a person is worth in the marketplace, and, and you have to pay, that's your atonement. So for the half, so you, so you have to evaluate what that person is worth, would be in the marketplace, and you have to pay half of it. Who do you pay it to? The person is dead. So the Yershev. 
to his inheritors. We have to understand. What do you mean inheritors? The guy is a slave. What, what inheritors? He's a convert. The half that was free is like a convert. The convert has no inheritors. What inheritors? He can't get married. What inheritors? A slave that has children, they don't inherit anything. There's no connection between the children and the, and the baron. The half that's free, what children? What do you mean Yershov? He has no Yershov. He, he's not a Jew. He's a convert. He had, there's no, every Jew has an inheritor. If there's no children, there's brothers. There's no brothers, there's a father. You go all the way back to Yaakov Avinu. So every Jew, you have a cousin going all the way back. Avram is Yaakov, you have cousins. Someone gets it. But a convert has no, he's like a newborn person. He has no one. Okay, but whatever. So he says, but, but there is a penalty of Kaifer, the value, and you give, and you give half of that you give to Yerushav, to his inheritor. So what, that's the price. So what do we see from there? How could there be inheritors? So you must say that he could get married to a Jewish woman. That marrying a Jewish woman is a good Kiddushin, and then when he has children from her, they, 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 he is their father. And, and he inherits, and they inherit. So you see that it is a good Kiddushin. And why is it a good Kiddushin? He's only giving half, because he's giving half of himself. A man can give half of himself. And especially, he is giving, not only half, he's giving whatever he could. He's giving 100% of what he could. That's all he has to give. So therefore, he could get married. It's a good Kiddushin. So he's married to this Jewish woman, and the children are considered his children. If he can't get married, then that means that the children are not considered his. He's a slave. If he's a slave, the children don't... Goyim also have inheritance, but not slaves. So if he's a slave and he has relations, yeah, he can have relations with a woman, but the children don't, are not considered his inheritance. They're not his children. Yeah, there's no connection. So you have to say, no, it is a legit marriage. And the children are considered his inheritors. So rejects this proof. He says, no. The Braise is talking about a case where the ox didn't kill the slave, but rendered him terminally ill. Gored him and rendered him terminally ill. So why do you have to pay? You have to pay the penalty as if you killed him, because it's the same. Yeah, he didn't die yet, but, but he's, he's dying. He's not going to live. He can't live. He can't, he can't recover. He can't survive. He's eventually going to die. So you have to pay the 30, but you pay half of it. And my Yosha, what does he mean? His inheritors, he means Nafshe himself. In other words, pay him. You have to pay his value. He's going to die. You don't have to wait till he dies. Evaluate him. And, and give him now. So half, half of it goes to him and half of it. So it's no proof. Really, I'll tell you, there's no condition. A half slave cannot marry. And the children have no connection to him. Rabbi says, no. I have two objections to Rabbi objection. It says Yershav. It doesn't say you give it to him. It says it's an narrator. What, what are you twisting words? The Braise says what it means. It means what it says. The rabbi speak clearly. He says, you should have said, you give it to him. What do you give it to his inheritors? There are no inheritors. It's not even a possibility of inheritors, you're telling me. So why, why use the word terminology inheritors? That's number one. The payment here is You only pay koifer after he dies. It's only when he's dead. That's when you pay, you evaluate. Then you need an atonement. As long as he's alive, you don't pay any koifer. So, so if he's dead, again, so, so you're not giving it to him. So 
it must mean his inheritors. Who are his inheritors? You must say it's a good marriage. In the case, in the case of the knas, the penalty, the Torah doesn't say that he was killed. It just say he was gored. So you can argue that if the if the axe gored him and he became fatally ill, it's the same as killed. He's inevitably going to die, so you already have to pay the penalty. When it comes to koifer, that if your axe kills a, a person, your fellow Jew, you're, you're, you're liable to pay the value. You have to atone, you need an atonement, as if you killed him, even though you didn't, but your axe, your property killed him. So you need an atonement. The Torah says clearly, and he died. So it only kicks in when he actually dies. It's not He's about to die, inevitably he's going to die. And until he dies, there is no koifer, you don't need an atonement. So once he dies, who are the inheritors? Are no inheritors. What he means is He doesn't mean there are inheritors. He means if there were inheritors, they would have gotten it. Because the kaifa, the atonement belongs to him. He gets and he only gets half of that, whatever half of his value, because only half of him is free. But it would have gone to his inheritors if it was possible. He had, but of course he doesn't have any inheritors. He can't get married. And he's he's half half, so he can't get married, and he's asleep. so there are no inheritors. There's no one to give it to. So we so we can't prove from this brayso one way or the other. The mother leaves it's a doubt. We don't know. Is it marriage? Is not a marriage? You can't prove it one way or the other. The doubt. Just like if you betroth the half a woman, it's definitely not a betrothal. Like you said, a, a woman can't marry two men. She can't mean to say, "Well, I'm giving half of half of myself to you; the other half I'm reserving to another man." No, it's all or nothing. So, the same thing. So too, a half a slave woman. I have a free woman who's betrothed. Her betrothal is nothing. It's not considered a valid betrothal. There's no question. It's not even a question. In the case of a slave, it's half and half. We had a question and we, we didn't resolve that question. But in the case of a half a slave woman, if one master freed her and the other master didn't, it's not even a question. It's not it's no kiddush. If, 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 if a full-fledged Jew is, there's no such thing as a half. Half a slave woman, half free, for sure or not. Yeah. Not even a question. Tadish Rabbi Rabbi Huna, Rabbi Huna expounded and he said, Kishem, Shama Kadish, Chatish, Enum, Kudesh, Kachetzer, 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 he said the same thing that the Rabbi said. So Amalit Abchizam, he said, wait a minute. How could you compare me, dummy? How are you comparing the two cases? Oh, some Shire Kinyanda, there the woman is reserving. I'm, I'm marrying you with one uh, with one half of me tied behind my one hand tied behind my back. I'm not giving you all of me, just fifty percent. Okay, that doesn't work. But here, she's giving a hundred percent of what she could. That's all she has to give. The other half is out of her hands. She's a half a slave. It's not hers to give. But the fifty percent, I'm giving you a hundred percent, a hundred percent of my fifty percent. So maybe it should work. <laughs> So Hadrokim Rabbi Rav Huna made eleven daughters. Rabbi Rav Huna signed, assigned an announcer. 
In other words, the, the rabbi would teach, and then he would have an amayra, he would have someone like a maturgaman who would get up and, and announce it. Mm-hmm. So he so Rabbi Rabbi Huna appointed this announcer, he said, It says in the Pasik, in Yeshaya, and Isaiah says, right before, right before the destruction of the first base, Amigdash, the first temple, people were lax. People were not really studying Torah intensively, seriously, and there was no one to to give halachic rulings. So the people, the someone who was a little of a Torah scholar, people would beg him, please, please um, um, become the halachic decider, become a rav, a paisik, because they said because. Because this stumbling block, they refer to the Torah, is under your hand. You you know some Torah. They, they they were not happy. They looked at it as a stumbling block. But we need we need your we need your guidance. So he said, person. What do you mean a stumbling block? How could you call the Torah a stumbling block? It's very disrespectful. What do you mean a stumbling block? And they were looking someone to help them decide the Torah. And then they were insulting the title with the stumbling block. He says, no, he means to say, you can't really understand the title. First you have to stumble on it. You have to make a mistake. So he was admitting, I made a mistake. First I ruled, I compared the, the, uh, the full Jewish who only gives 50% and it's not a good Kiddushan. So I compared the, the, the half-slave woman and half-free woman. So also it's not a good Kiddushan. But then Rav Chizda taught that it's not so. And I agree, I made a mistake and that's how I learned. I learned from my mistakes. My time, why? Rabbi explains. Like Rabbi Chizda says, you can't compare the two. I was wrong to make the comparison. But he says, I don't regret it. That's the only way to learn. You learn and you make a mistake. Mm-hmm. How many times do we find the rabbis revise their opinion, that an early opinion, and then the Mishnah Basra, then they change their mind. Okay. You know, first you learn. You make a mistake, and then you realize the mistake. It's the only way. Also, when you make a mistake, and then you realize your mistake, you really remember it. You really, uh, you know. So it's it's fine. That that's the way. That's what he means. The stumbling. It's the only way to learn Torah is by stumbling first, and making mistakes, and then straightening straightening yourself out. Amar Rav Sheshes. disagrees. He disagrees with Rav Chizda. He disagrees with Rabbi Ravuna. He said, I'm sorry, Rabbi Ravuna, you got it right the first time. It is a good comparison. If a Jewish woman can't, he can't betroth half of her. A half slave and a half free woman, he can't either betroth. If a person will whisper to you and say and that maybe... But I can refute this from the following but I said we learned what's considered a designated slave woman. So half a slave woman, half free. One master freed her and one master did her. And she married. Who could she marry? She married an Evadivri because an Evadivri is a Jew, a Jewish slave. Born Jew or Jewish slave, he just he just he couldn't he sold himself into slavery or he stole and the peasant sold into slavery. So he's Jew, so he's allowed to marry the half that's free. But being an evadivity, the master is allowed to also give him to his maid. He's allowed to be with his maid. 
Mm-hmm. So it's not in sin. He's living with her 100%. He's allowed. And then she commits adultery. So usually when he commits adultery, there's a death sentence. But in her case, since she's a half a slave, there's no death sentence. So there's lashes, there's a sacrifice that has to be brought. That's the special case of a shifka charuf. What do we see? That means that she could be married. We see that you could marry. Here I'm telling you that you can't marry a half a slave, a half a slave woman and a half a servant and a half free. The whole shifcha charuf disproves it. Shifcha charuf is a half a slave woman and a half free and you're saying that she's married to the evadivity. But the Torah says if she commits adultery, it's not, it's, since she's a half a slave woman, there's no death penalty, there's no death sentence, there's lashes and there's a sacrifice. Lasham shifcha charuf, the guilt sacrifice of a shifcha charuf. So Emily, I'll tell you, no, go, go and examine what Rabbi Shmuel, how Rabbi Shmuel, Rabbi Shmuel interpreted it. He'll tell you, no, is a Canaanite slave woman who's betrothed to a Hebrew slave. Not half slave and half free. 100% slave woman. But an evidivity is allowed to, allowed to be with her. Not married her. Yeah, the husband, the, the master can give, have him sleep with her. So any children that are born are slaves, are Canaanite slaves, non-Jewish slaves. What do you mean married her? It's not married to her. When he says Murasa, it means Yechedes. Like designated. He designated her to him. So Hachinami also over here, you can say, my Muras is Miuchedes. When the Brais says betrothed, when it says Murasa, doesn't mean betrothed, it means designated. Without betrothal. In other words, even the Brais that says, that a shifcha charufa is a half-slave woman and half-free. One master freed and one didn't. And she's living with an evadivri. It doesn't mean that she's actually married to the evadivri. Designated. So he's allowed to be with her. The half-free is allowed to be. Free. And the, the slave. Right. But there's no kiddushin. Kiddushin doesn't apply. Yeah, it doesn't prove anything. Exactly. It doesn't prove She's a half a slave woman, and half of her was free, and she was betrothed to Ruvi in the Shtachra, and then she was completely emancipated. After she was emancipated and freed, she was betrothed to someone else, to, 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 to Ruvi's brother, Shimon. And both Ruvi and Shimon died. Missy Avemis Levi. She could be married to Levi. She could be do Yibum to Levi. Because she's full fledged married to Shimon. He died childless. So she's obligated to Yibum to the brother. But to Levi. Chidash is, and Abbot is, we continue on side B, 43. She's not called the wife of two deceased men. The Titus says you're only allowed to do Yibum if it's a wife of one brother. But here it seems like she was the wife of two brothers. Because when she was a half-slave, half-freed, she was first betrothed to Ruvain. 
Then... But we said that's only miyuchedet, that's not betrothed. Okay, but uh, she did a bet- he did a betrothal. Right. Whether it's effective or not, we'll see. But he did a betrothal. Then she became totally freed. And without getting any divorce, she... Um, she was betrothed to the other brother, to Shimon, after she became full-fledged, fully free. Right. And the Yuvim is, is from Shimon, not from Reuben. Right. Okay. And uh, so it's not called a, a wife of two, of two brothers. Really, biblically, there's no such thing. You can't be a wife of two brothers. You can't be the wife of two brothers. You can't. It means the widow of two brothers. How is that going to be an issue? If one brother dies and the other the other one takes her as in Yibam, and then he dies and the other brother has to take her. No problem. There's no problem. But she would be the... Uh, doesn't matter. No, we're talking about simultaneously. Okay. How can it be simultaneous? You can't be married to two no, brothers. No, no. But... She could be the widow of both. She was a widow. The first brother died. And it was, it was one brother. So she became now a Yibam. Yeah. And one, one of the brothers betrothed Now, biblically, betrothal doesn't do anything. It's not effective. But even there's only two options. Either you, you marry her, or you give her a chalitza, the equivalent of a gift. Marrying her with a kiddushin doesn't do anything. It's a continuation of the brother's marriage. You don't have to make the new kiddushin. It doesn't mean anything. But rabbinically, it means something. That if one brother gives her a kiddushin, gives her a ring, gives her money, whatever, then we look at it as if she's now connected to him. So let's say one brother, one the brother died childless, and one brother gave her a ring, and then he dies. So now it's like she's a wife of two brothers simultaneously, because since by giving her the ring, now she has connected to the other brother. But there was no yibum, there was no chalitz. So she, so it's like the other brother has two. Obligations. There's two brothers now. She's the survivor now of two brothers simultaneously. Two because brothers. she hasn't unhooked from the first one. Yeah, she hasn't unhooked from the first one. She didn't unhook from the second one. He gave a kedusha and didn't give a divorce from that kedusha. So she's like she's like the wife of two two brothers who now fall on the third brother. That that doesn't work. But in this case, it's not so. Because since he gave her a kedusha, she was a half maid. She was half free, but she was a half a slave woman. So therefore, the Kiddush doesn't count at all. And, and when she becomes fully free and she marries Shimon, and then he dies, Levi could marry her. She's not considered the wife of two, of two, two brothers. The mother says, mother, the mother explains. Why? Why is she not considered a wife? The first, Reuven gave her a Kiddush, and then she married Shimon. So how could she fall to Levi? How could, how could he do a Yibum? Maybe she must do a Chalitza. He can't do a Yibum because she's the wife of two brothers. So it says, no, Manavsh. Kiddushin, the Reuven Kiddushin. If you're going to say the Reuven's Kiddushin is a good Kiddushin. If it's a valid Kiddushin, then Kiddushin is Shimon Lav Kiddushin. Then the Kiddushin of Shimon is meaningless. Because biblically, you can't marry, two brothers can't marry the same wife. First of all, she's a married woman. So no, no one could do a Kiddushan with her. You can't marry a Kiddushan, especially not a brother. So then the second Kiddushan is not a Kiddushan. She's only married to one brother, only to Reuven. What she did to Shimon doesn't mean anything. It's meaningless. You give her a ring from today to tomorrow, give her a million dollars, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't mean anything. She's a married woman. 
The Kiddush of the Shimon, if you're going to say the Shimon, the Kiddush of Shimon, the Kiddush, the Kiddush of the Ruben, the Kiddush, and then the first Kiddush is meaningless. So it's one or the other. Since I'm married to two brothers, he's married to one. And therefore, when the, when the brother dies childless, the obligation of Yibam falls on Levi. He's saying, like, he's saying he's in doubt. What Rafchisa says he's in doubt. I'm not sure whether it's a good Kiddush or not. Right? We learned earlier, right? We learned earl- earlier. Rav Sheshe says it is. Rav Chisa says it's not. So, either way, if you're going to say that it is a valid Kiddushin, that the half that's free is married to Ruvain, the first brother, then Shimon, even though now the other half is free, you can't marry a half a woman. And the half, the other half that was free before is already committed to the other brother. So therefore, Shimon, there's no condition whatsoever. You can say, oh, but now she's totally free. So maybe Reuven is married to half of her, Shimon is married to half of her. No. Reuven couldn't marry half of her because that was all she had. She gave everything that she had. That's all she had to give. She gave 100% of it. Shimon, however, he can't marry half. The 50% that was now free. The other half is already married to the Reuven. So then Reuven's ma- Shimon's marriage is not a marriage. If you're going to say that Reuven's marriage is nothing. Like uh, like uh, uh, like Rav Sheish is old. And, and Rabbi Barabhuna originally holds. Then Reuven's is nothing. Shimon is everything. So she's only married to Shimon. So when he dies, childless Levi can do a Yibam. What's the problem? This guy. It's what we learned. Chetzia shivcha vechetzia baschedin sheneskatzel ruv half half free half slave woman who betrothed ruv minishtakra and then she becomes fully free. Chazra vechetzel shim and then she was betrothed to shim. The first betrothal becomes nullified. So now she's Shimon's wife. Once she becomes fully free, so it's like she's newly born. She becomes like a convert, a full convert. It's like a conversion. A conversion is considered like a newly born child. So now that she becomes 100% free, She's like a new existence, no connection to previously. Biblically, a convert can marry his brother, his sister, his father, his mother, her sister, her father. They're like newly born. There's no connection. Yeah, a new, a new existence, a new entity. So now she can marry him. And the contrary. Now it completes the first the first marriage. As soon as the other half becomes free. So now the betrothal spreads to her whole being. 50% betrothed, now it spreads automatically to her whole being. So therefore, if she lives with anyone else, it's adultery. She can get executed. If she commits adultery when she's a half a free, half a slave, half a slave woman, half a dust, that's a shifra charufa. Then you don't get there's no death penalty. 
But the moment she becomes 100% free, without doing anything, now that marriage that she did with Reuben becomes complete. Now she's a full-fledged married woman. If she commits adultery, they're both going to get executed, her and the the adultery. Okay. Sharp argument. I'll bring you proof that I'm right. Mm-hmm. It says, says, why if she commits adultery, Shufa Kharufa is half slave woman, have this, why if she commits adultery, doesn't she die? Because she's not free. So what do we see? What if she was freed, 100% freed? Then, then Yumsu, without doing anything, not she has to now betroth someone else, without doing anything, the, the marriage would spread to the Eva Divini, she'd become a full fledged wife, and then she would die. Like any other adult. According to Rabbi Shmuel, who says it's talking, we're talking about a, a full-fledged Canaanite slave woman, a non-Jewish slave woman, who's designated to the Ebedivri. You're going to say that automatically, if she's freed, she's going to die. Why? She's single. There's no marriage. She's not married to the Ebedivri. We established. Murasa means Mi'chedes. She's just designated. It was never a marriage. Even if she becomes free, it's like a single woman who sleeps around. You know, there's no death penalty. It's not adultery. What do you have to say? How would you interpret the pasuk according to Abishmol? The Torah means, if, but if she's because she didn't become free, so she can't get married. But if she's free and she does a kiddushin, she becomes married. Then, then there'll be adultery. It's also here. Really, I'll tell you that half a slave after this is not a marriage. It's not a. And when she goes free, she's like a newborn person. But if she goes then and does a kiddushin to anyone, then she becomes full-fledged married. And then if she commits adultery, she's executed. Same thing. Same thing. But the Mishnah said that even if he'll agree to be sham at the end, that a half-slave and half-free woman, we force the master to free her. To free her. The mission only discussed a slave, a man. What about a woman slave? So there was a story, an episode. It's a woman, she was a half slave and half free. The kofu was rabba was a and they forced the master to free to free. So according to who? This is follow the This blessing that Hashem said, this commandment that Hashem blessed them to be fruitful and multiply, applies to both men and women equally. They're both obligated to procreate. So therefore, for the same reason. <coughs> that you force the master to free the slave, the half-slave and half-free. Because otherwise he can't marry, he's stuck. He can't marry a Jew, he can't marry someone. So to a little woman also, she's also stuck, and we also are obligated, compelled to free her. No, that's not the reason. Really, I'll tell you, not like Rabbi Yechem women are not obligated to prove the but why? Why then? Why did they compel her? Because in her case, she became she became like like a prostitute. She became loose, and everyone was sleeping around with her. So therefore, they felt they felt obligated to free her. So so she can marry, and her husband will will protect her and watch her. So she was promiscuous because she was stuck. 
she had raging hormones and she can't marry anyone. <laughs> you know, as it is, a slave is much more loose. You know, doesn't have a strong ego and is, is, doesn't have a lot of self worth and so on. Yes, okay. Someone, a master sells a slave to a guy or the master is living in Israel and he sells a slave to a Jew who's living outside the land of Israel we force, we compel the master to free him this is a case where we compel the master 43b the moment the master sells his Canaanite non-Jewish slave to a non-Jew, the slave goes free. But you have to, uh, you need a bill, a bill of emancipation to free, to free from his first master to become full-fledged Jewish and free. You can't, you can't force the slave to work for him, but he's still a master that is full for trees. The, the, yeah, we just did the mission in the 43 Thanks. When do we say this? When the master did not write his document for him. When he sold him to the guy, he did not write his document. But if he wrote, writes his document. When he sells himself, then that sale, bill of sale, is also a bill of emancipation. You don't need a separate document. If he didn't write any document, then he sold him. It was an exchange of money. But to free him, to fully free him, you need a bill, you need a document. My oine, what's oine? Rav is the cause of the This is what he writes in the document. When you flee from the idolater, I will have no dealing with you. In other words, he's saying, he writes him a document that if you will flee from, I sold you to the idolater, but if you will flee from the idolater, then you acquire yourself, basically. So that is a bill of, of emancipation. That's what he's giving him a bill. He says, you're acquiring yourself, and you're no longer a slave. the rabbis learn, the love, a love, if a master borrowed from an idolater, but he used the slave as a collateral. So if, if this proceeding is according to the custom, then the slave goes free. What explains? My name Musa. What do you mean? The idolater's custom. In other words, he hangs his seal on the slave's neck identifying the slave as his own, that now he belongs to the idolater. So, so this, he, the slave was made the collateral. So he already put his identification marks, his seal on the slave, now he belongs to me. So it's as if he acquires it. Once he puts his, his uh, he hangs his seal on the slave publicly, he's like saying, now the slave belongs to me. So therefore we punish the borrower and we say you have to free the slave. It's as if, even though really not, he just pledged him as a collateral. If the time comes to pay, he can't pay. But since it's public, he's already putting, the guy already put, immediately put his, his, his seal hanging on his neck and everyone sees it. So therefore we punish the borrower to free the slave. Much 
We learned the Brais Adisin, a Jewish sharecropper. Or a sharecropper works and he gets percentage. He gets a percentage of the crop. Whatever whatever the crop is, he gets percentage. Then you have Hakiris. It's like a tenant farmer agreement. In other words, he keeps the crop, but he pays a fixed amount of produce each year. There's no percentage. Percentage is if it's a good year, you're gonna get whatever, ten percent, thirty percent, whatever, whatever the yield. Hakiris is more fixed. You keep everything, but you're going to give me, I don't care what. If you don't grow a single fruit, you have to pay me this amount. And if you, you grow in abundance, it's all yours. The guy has more incentive to work hard. Because he's not, he's not, he's really, the more harder he works, he gets, he just gives him a fixed sum. And he can make a huge, huge, huge yield and profit. Anyway, so it's two different arrangements. Adisin, a sharecropper, and a tenant. Like he's a tenant. Tenant, farmer, a tenant. Adisin, but the others. Or a Jewish ancestral sharecropper. In other words, his ancestor, the sharecropper's ancestors worked the land for for the landowner's ancestors. It's in the family already. It's passed down for the generation. This arrangement is generations. My father worked for your father as a sharecropper for your father, etc. And the Mishkan Sedeli Yisrael, or idolater, designated this field as collateral to Jewish lender. Even though the Jew made the proceedings according to the idolater's custom, the crops are exempt from mice. The Jew is the sharecropper, the Jew is the tenant. Or the, or the ancestral sharecropper, but who owns the land? The non-Jew. Or the non-Jew gave his field as a collateral. So all of these cases, even though you follow the idolater's custom, it still belongs to the Goy. The, the field is considered it belongs to the Goy. So the Goy is exempt from Maisa. Only a Jew is obligated to Maisa, even though it's in the land of Israel. But if the Goy owns land of Israel, he's the owner of, of pieces of land in Israel, is exempt from Maisa. Even if you buy it from him, you don't say, well, it's the land of Israel, and it's Israeli fruits, and the Jew purchased it, it belongs to the Jew, so I'm obligated to Maisa. No, we follow the owner. The owner is not Jewish, so all the fruits that come from his land is also exempt from, from tithing. Even though the Jew has an interest, he's a sharecropper, he's... he's, he's been, from, been there for, for generations that way. He's a landlord, he's a, you know, he's a tenant. Nevertheless, he exempts. Lee says a sharecropper is not considered. Okay, a sharecropper, you can say he only gets percentage, fine. Even a tenant who can work the land and it's his, whatever he works is his. He just has to pay a fixed sum. Surely in this case, you, he's considered like an owner. He's working like an owner. He's working hard, like a real capitalist. But still not his, though. It's still not his. Then he's saying even more so, even though it's been there for generations. Legacy. So it's a legacy. So surely he's like a, like a partner, like an owner. No. And even in the other case. Even though it was designated as collateral to the Jew. But until it's actually collected by the Jew, collateral itself doesn't matter. 
So if you're going to say Nashki, that the adulter's custom is if you put a seal and you hang up the seal already, so Sada bas Nashki. What do you mean? If Nimusi means Nashki, where Sada is not a seal, a slave, I can understand. They would put the seal and the slave hang to show that it belongs, it belongs to the new master. But a field, what, what do you mean? A field is not no connect. What do you mean a seal? Zman, Nashki, what it means is Nimusi means Zman. If you write the date in the loan document, you have to free the slave only if you put the date. When? By which date? If you don't pay, then the slave will belong to the idolatry. This date, this is a contradiction. One Braise says, Braise says that if you have Nimusi, if you have a date, it's as if you sold it already and it belongs to the non-Jew and we've compelled the master to free the slave. In the second b'risa that we just learned, we say that if you put if you put a date, even though there's a date, it doesn't mean anything. Until he actually collect, until the Jew actually collects the collateral, collects the field, it's considered the non-Jew's field and you're exempt from Maisa. Your says, like, cash is not a contradiction. In the first b'risa, in the first b'risa, the... the the slave we're talking about, it arrived already. Mm-hmm. So it already arrived, and so now the slave belongs to the, to the guy. So therefore, he made the slave collateral, and the time has arrived, he didn't pay. So now it belongs to the guy, so therefore we compel the master to free the slave. Our Braise, this Braise is talking about, it didn't yet arrive. So just because in the future he designated this field as a collateral, right now the field belongs to the guy, and therefore the fruits are exempt from Maise. The mother says, Ella Gabiyeve, the mother Zimli, Tzrichel Meimer, you have to tell me. I need a Braise to tell me if the time has come. So, therefore, the guy acquires the slave. Of course, he's the new master. So, of course, we said already, you compel the master to free the slave if you sell it to an Andrew. If the time was coming, he didn't pay your loan and you designated him as a collateral, and now he took over, the, he became the master of the slave. What's the Braise coming to teach me then? Mm-hmm. Of course, we forced the master. That's, the, that's exactly what we're talking about. If you sell your slave to a non-Jew, you, we compel him to free. What, what's the novelty? Really, both Bryce are talking about the, before the time came. It's not a contradiction. It's one thing about the slave. You're talking about the slave himself was designated as collateral. Since the slave himself was designated, even before the time already, he made up he made up that after, when the time comes, the slave will become his entirely. But until that time, he can make use of the slave. Till then, he can make use of it. So now he's making use of the slave. That's why we compel him to free him. In the case of the Braise, it's not the land itself. He never committed the land itself. He just said that if the time comes and you don't pay, then all the fruits will go to you. Mm-hmm. But until that time, the land itself is mine. And the land will always remain mine. I'm just the fruits. I'm committing the fruits. The yield will, will, will as, as payment. Mm-hmm. But the land remains mine. Mm-hmm. So until the time comes, the, the land is mine. And therefore any fruits are exempt from my Versus the slave, he's giving the slave himself over when the time comes. You take over, you acquire the slave. And therefore in the meanwhile, you can use the slave. So since you're using the slave, your own personal use, therefore we compel the, ra- the master to free him 
free him immediately. He lend him that when the time comes, yes, he can take it. But he didn't take it. He didn't take it yet. So in the case of the slave, it doesn't matter. Since he could take him already, therefore the rabbi said we compel the master to free him. In the case of the fruits, since he didn't yet collect it, so the fruits are still, still belong to the non-Jew and therefore they're exempt from the mice until he actually collects it. Everyone have a wonderful day.